Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to another episode of Latitudes In Session Podcast. Today, we are joined by Gary Gruno. Gary, thanks for hopping on the show, man. Hey, yeah, no problem. It's great to be here. Yeah, you know, we've been talking in the background for a couple years, and I've been watching what you've done over the last few years specifically, and you've been absolutely killing it, man. You've laid down seven or eight bucks in the last three years. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's been a great ride. Uh, absolutely loving this, loving every minute of it, and blessed. Yeah, it's it's well deserved too, man. I know that you put a ton of work in, and I really look up to you, and and that inspires me a lot. Love seeing guys that put a lot of work in and then have success because of it. So you definitely fit into that type of person, and uh, really appreciate it, man. But but yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show today. You know, we are looking at about 45 days out of some of these openers and about 60 days out of uh, the Ohio opener. And I just want to run through some, it's mainly going to be a trail camera talk podcast because I feel like that's what you do really well and you run a ton of cameras. And I run quite a few as well. So I, I want to see where we align, where we defer, and you know what I can learn from you. So if you don't mind, let's just run through an introduction of yourself. You know, Tell everybody what you do, who you are, how you got into hunting, uh, how long you've been hunting, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I, uh, I started hunting when I was uh, 12 years old, so I'm 50 now. Started off as a meat hunter with my dad. It was brown, it was down. I was just excited to shoot something. And I started in bull hunting probably when I was 15. My dad wasn't much of a bull hunter, but uh, man, I loved it. It just got me more time in the woods, close and personal with these deer. Uh, first bull I shot was a compound with wooden limbs, so it's come a long way since then. But uh, over the years, I take a week off and head to northern Wisconsin for the rut and try to get what I considered a good buck at that time was an eight eight pointer or better and go from there and try to shoot a doe. Uh, over the years, though, I got into trapping as well to get my son out in the woods. And I started running out of time for, for bow hunting. So what I'd end up doing, I ran a 300 uh, trap trap line, which is very time consuming and a ton of work because you, you'd have to run these traps, check them, and then you'd have to go home and skin at night. So it was a lot of long days, but uh, it paid the bills at the time or helped pay the bills. I need the extra money. So what I do is I pull all my sets for a week and then head to Northern Wisconsin, try to shoot my deer and then come back home. Well, over the years, I decided that I want to do more bull hunting and in order to do bull hunting to the way I wanted to do it as as much as I wanted to get into it I'd have to give up trapping so that's what I did about um uh, six seven years ago I decided I was going to try to go after some older class bucks and I was getting on them but I wasn't on them I get a, a sighting or two during the season and that was about as good as I could get, but I never really saw the four and five and six-year-olds that I was really after. Uh, I shot a couple 
of okay bucks. But then uh, about five years ago, I went to Dan Infeld deal in the swamp where he takes you around and he shows you how to get close to the bedding and why. And he basically like spills all his secrets. And I learned that I was like 30, 30, 40, 50 yards out of the game, which might as well be a mile. So after I started connecting everything, I, uh, I started getting really successful quickly. But in the meantime, I'm also running more and more cameras and learning more and more stuff about deer that were just blew my mind on on some of the stuff that I could see. The more cameras I'd run, the more I'd learn, and then the more history I was getting on uh, on some of these deer. So, fast forward last year, I decided to challenge myself with some self filming, and oh man, what a ride that is! A lot of work, and it's a lot of fun though when it all comes together. So uh, some of my stuff is uh, was posted on the Beast, and uh, now I'm actually filming for Dan with my hunts, and hopefully going to do some hunts with him this year. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, just enjoying the ride for sure. Blessed, seriously blessed. No doubt, man. That's uh that's an awesome story about how you started out with that wooden limb compound. I remember my first bow was a old fiberglass yellow longbow. And I shot that and then I got a, when I was like three and a half or maybe for my fourth birthday, I got my first compound. It was a old Browning back in the early nineties. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth shooting bows too. So that's, it's a cool story, man. So I do have a, a off topic question real quick. Being such a big trapper for a long time, did you notice an improvement in your whitetail success or your hunting abilities after you, you ran that major trap line, as opposed to before you ran that trap line? Like when you were done with that, did you notice that you were, you were any better at deer hunting? Was there anything you picked up that's valuable there? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't even explain to you all the little things that I pick up that most people are walking by. I mean, yeah, you see your your tracks and you're always looking for that four finger track and you learn how to age, you know, how old the track was and stuff like that. But it's all the other things that you see, what they're eating, where the those faint trails are, or uh, let's say you're just walking through and you see a, a broken tree branch or a nick, nicks in trees and bushes coming up out of a bedding area it's just all these little things that i pick up that maybe a lot of guys would pass on uh and not even notice like jewelweed i i picked up on that probably about 10 years ago now uh I was hunting actually a, a real tiny, small sliver of private, and this jewelweed would grow four or five feet tall. And right around the beginning of September to mid-September, they would mow it down right, right to the ground. And it was like a food plot in the woods. But things that other people would struggle with just came naturally for me. And it's really tremendously helped, even as far as learning what types of trees are what. That is such a beneficial thing. Oaks and what kind of oaks and when they drop, when they're actually viable for deer. And yeah, all that definitely helps out. That's something that I still struggle with quite a bit is finding that micro sign. I went out with Ryan Glitzky and we filmed it in session with him and he was much better at finding that stuff than I am. And it was a big awakening for me. And so I just, I recognized that that was a problem and I have for a long time, but that's why I'm so big on telling everybody not to generalize deer movement or deer patterns or anything anymore, because I went down that path so many times and I'm just trying to get a lot better at finding those micro details that 
I've walked by for a long time. And, you know, it's just trying to be a little bit better than I was last year. And that's the goal going into every year. And so that's kind of the reason I asked you about that trapping question is, you know, to me, the the sign you're looking for when you're a trapper, a lot of times it's going to be very, very small sign because it's a smaller animal. And so compared to a deer, you know, a deer leaves a big track in the dirt and it leaves big sign and it's very obvious. But I just feel like if you can take those trapping skills and you can cross that over into whitetail hunting, your ability to find that minor sign that most people are going to overlook just skyrockets. And I haven't told this story yet, but basically I've known about this deer for a long time. I hunted this deer up until the end of season last year. And it's in a spot where there's very little cell signal, but right on top of the ridges, you do, you get like a bar. I would never anticipate killing that deer up there, but I've walked this ridge over and over. I mean, I've been in this system for, you know, multiple years in Ohio, scouting it every year. And, you know, I'm a hub guy. I'm a either side steep hill or hub guy. And I stay off the spines of the ridge for the most part. Well, I'm up on this ridge and there's always been this big scrape and it's got a really good looking branch on it. It looks like it would be a hub scrape down in the bottom. It's just that worn into the ground. It's got that many looking branches. They're all twisted up. And I've always just walked by it because it was on top of the ridge. And in my head, I've always told myself like, man, the big deer is just not going to want to be on this ridge in daylight. He's not going to want to come over top of this thing. It's wide open. It's in a bad spot. And I've ran SD cams in there before on that ridge, and it showed me that the deer aren't using that ridge. Well, this year I walked in there, and because I've been spending more time with guys that have better woodsmanship and that are good at finding this micro sign, I looked at it differently. And I started looking at it, and what I noticed is that the thing that I've missed for years is there is a very faint trail through Greenbrier that you can see where there's like just a little bit of browse where they've been walking this trail. And it's not even used enough to where the Greenbrier is not growing. Like they're actually stepping through the Greenbrier. And what they're doing is they're coming off the steep side of the bedding. And for a 20 foot section of that ridge, they cross over the top of that ridge. And then they get on the adjacent side of that ridge on the steep side and they run it all the way down to their food source. And so, you know, they're staying steep, but they have a 20 foot section where they have to cross that ridge if they want to get to the food source they want to go to. So I finally put that all together this year and I had one bar of signal and I just popped a cell cam up and I have uh, the buck I'm after on that camera all the time right now. Almost every day he shows up and it just, you know, I never thought that he would be doing that. And it kind of blows my mind. Like 99% of the big deer that I find are in cellless areas, they're cell signalless areas. They just, they stay on the steep ridges and they stay low where the signal just doesn't get down there. So it's normally an SD cam game, but that one deer is just, he's exposing a 20 foot section of weakness. And well, you know, we're 60 days out of season. So there's a lot that can happen. A lot can go wrong, but just finding that micro sign in that little trail that came out of there and then th being able to throw a cell cam on it and seeing that it's he's right there. I mean, he is utilizing that and hitting that scrape all the time. Just made me feel really good. It's like, okay, you're a little better than you were last year. So just keep that process going every year. And I just, I feel like the more things that we dabble in as sportsmen, the, the better opportunities we have at learning and growing because, you know, being a deer hunter is great, but there's a lot of other things out there that can help you be a better deer hunter, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with all that. And that's pretty awesome story, actually. It's pretty similar to where I shot my buck last year. You know, the, the thing that trapping does is really you got to slow down and really look for all those details. When I go spring scouting, when I find those beds, I just not finding those beds and looking out of them and all that, which a lot of people do already. But I'm digging around in those beds. I am looking for 
for hair. I want to see how deep that hair is. Is it under the leaves? Something that would show that it's an early season bed. But the other thing I'm looking for is the hair itself. Is it long hair? The hollow long hair or is it the short hair? That'll tell me too. Is that an early season bed or is that a late season bed? Or maybe it's both. It gets you to stop and investigate things a lot more and think about it with the background that I have with trapping. I, I definitely feel it helps out tremendously. And you made a really good point about it just it makes you slow down. And I think that the biggest thing I've taken away over the past couple of years in my own strategy, I've voiced it multiple times to people, but it really is just slowing down. You know, for a long time, I was so worried with covering ground and like a mileage number or trying to just be this efficient scouter that's just, you know, hey, I'm going to go in and I'm going to run the leeward side of all these ridges. And that's great. And that is an efficient thing to do. And you can have a lot of success doing that. But what's really helped me fine tune some things over the last few years and made me feel a lot better about where I am as a hunter is really just slowing down and not taking anything for granted out there. You know, every little piece of sign, every track, every trail, every rub, every scrape, all the different food sources, all the different oaks, I want to know where they're all at. And I just like just becoming really intimate with the areas I'm hunting is something that's important to me now because I, if a deer shows up there, I just want to know that I can have a good idea of where to go. I don't want to get left in the dark. And you know, it's a, it's a process. Last year, I thought I had that process figured out and I ended up, you know, having a really rough season. And I actually, when I found the deer, I didn't have that information. So I just made sure that, you know what, learn from the mistakes and go back in there this spring and which I did and learn every square foot of that. And so you feel dangerous. And now I do feel more dangerous. And it just so happens that there's a good buck in there too already. So, so cool, man. Let's dive into today's topic a little bit. And it's one I'm really excited about. I want to do a lot of trail camera talk with you because we both run a ton of cameras. You run more than I do a couple different States. And the first thing that I want to do is just go through your general strategy. So, you know, we might be a little bit late for when you typically put your cameras out. I know that I'm still working on getting all my cameras out just because I have a lot of them this year. But I want to just go through your typical dates for putting your cameras out, how you plan on checking them throughout the summer or the fall, like what your strategy is there leading up to season. I probably run about 18 cell cameras and I, the rest are, I probably have about 70, 75-ish SD card cameras. And the reason why I run so many cameras is to get information. A lot of historical knowledge is what I'm looking at. I like to know what bucks are where at what time, whether it be early season, mid-October. Our season in Wisconsin starts mid-September usually, so I do have that opportunity for about a week to get on something uh, real good that's still on the, the bed to the food type path. I run these cameras in a way that not only am I getting um, what bucks are out there, and but when. Uh, that's also key too, because in Wisconsin here right now, and I see a lot of guys making this mistake, they're deploying their cameras out now, and some of these guys are running their cell cams right now too, and they are getting some nice bucks on their camera. And they're getting excited. They already pretty much have this all figured out. Like they're going to, that deer's already dead on their wall because they're getting daily pictures of it. And I'm just trying to get them to understand that things are going to change. There's way too much between now and opener in Wisconsin that is going to change. So what I do is I put cameras out with the idea that that's the area they're going to move into. I'm predicting where they're going to move into once the pressure starts, 
ones, the velvet comes off. When you have all these different things that affect deer, deer moving, especially mature bucks, it just seems like, yeah, they'll sit on the edge of the fields now and just come out there and graze, you know, 10 minutes or a half hour before dark. But I tell you what, that all changes when it, their velvet comes off and they break up into their, uh, in their solo patterns like they do. So I kind of, what I'm looking at is to predict that. So the biggest mistake I think a lot of guys do are just getting those pictures now and then, and then they're going in and checking their cameras constantly too, which is kind of like putting hunts in every time you check your cameras. So I have different kinds of cameras, meaning their job objectives. Some are just to get an idea of what bucks are in the area, and those I can check. They'll be in areas that are not going to, you know, throw red flags at them, that they're going to freak out and move five miles away. Those are some pretty easy to check cameras, sometimes just right off the road, sometimes on the outside edges of a swamp where there's bedding. And those cameras are... For me, cameras that I can just check and and say, oh yeah, yep, he's working this area now, or nope, he's not in this area now. So if that makes sense to you. I have a very similar strategy where I have I have cameras that I'm just checking up on areas and they're like uh, some of these hub scrapes. I don't necessarily plan on on sitting in that hub because it's further down the ridges, like in some of these areas where it's a higher floor to ceiling. What that hub scrape ends up being for me a lot of times is just in a good area to gain inventory and intel of the area. So I'll run cameras in these hub scrapes and they're still, most of them are still anticipating that shift. That's a big thing that that I like to do as well is, you know, right now, most of the deer are, are showing up in the fields or they're on browse sources down low, you know, whatever the case may be. And they're going to shift back into the acorns when the acorns start to drop. We have a lot of acorns this year already on the ground from the windstorm. So I know of some really good pockets where I think they're going to shift into. I've got cameras preset and staged in those areas. And then I just pull them, you know, a couple weeks out of the opener. And then I get the data that I need for the opener. You know, I'll correlate all those pictures with wind direction and everything else. Typically what I see is the deer don't actually shift back into those systems until almost like September 1 a lot of times. Uh, Ohio's opener is normally between like September 24th and September 30th. This year it's the 30th, I believe. But so yeah, so I have a very similar process where a lot of those hub scrapes are just, I can go up the creek, I can take the card out of that camera and I can get out of there and not intrude at all, not cause any damage to the bedding. They're still going to feel comfortable in that system. I go in on the right wind days. I go in as scent-free as possible. And I just pull the card, get out, check it, formulate that data, and I have my plan. And then I have cameras that are more of like uh, kill locations. And some of these are in between the bedding and the hub scrape. So on the ridge, they're specifically coming down. And a lot of times I'll use those as I'm like, if I get a buck on a hub scrape the day before season, I'm in there checking a card with a west wind. I know he's bedded up there. So the next day I'll go in a lot of times. And as I'm headed up that ridge, if I do have a camera there, I'll just pull the card out real quick and, and read it. And if I have that buck coming down that ridge in daylight, well, I'll set up right there. But if not, I'll push up even closer. And, you know, I don't always have that information. I don't always run the cameras there, but sometimes I do. If, you know, if he's got to travel four or 500 yards from his bed to get to that hub, it's a good thing to do. Now, if it's only 80 yards, I wouldn't do that. You know, it'd be a different situation. But, but yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's a great point to kind of cover is anticipating the shift. And I've talked about it quite a few times on here, but it's just one thing to really hit home because 
right now, you know, I'm driving around Ohio. Yesterday, I went and got my bow worked on and man, I'm driving by some bean fields and there's bucks bedded and feeding in these beans all day long. Like at noon, I saw a hammer yesterday feeding in beans. And a lot of guys are probably driving by getting excited that that deer's on the bean field. And, you know, what I see down here is those beans are going to dry up and they're going to shift. Do you, you pretty much see the same thing with those early season food sources, right? Well, in Wisconsin, I can get maybe a week of green hunting beans. Not that I hunt field edges, but I hunt the bedding that are closest to those beans. I can get about a week out. But in, in Indiana, that was one thing I had to learn. It was really hard for me. Uh, I started hunting with Josh Tolker about four years ago, and I was always excited about the beans because in Wisconsin, you know, we have a week before those beans usually dry up. And here I'm looking at all these beans. I'm getting outside. He's like, why do you keep looking at those beans? He's like, those things are going to be garbage by the time October 1 comes around. And I'm like, ah, you know, you are so right. So now it's shifted to corn and acorns in Indiana, being that they have a later start. And yeah, it's great to go out there and, and spot those deer and know that those bucks are in the area. And But you have to anticipate that change or you're going to be not on deer until rut if you're sitting on those field edges hoping to get a shot at them if it's not an actual crop field that they're hitting, you know. So, you know, it's kind of funny that you're talking about how you checked your cameras on the way in. So that's kind of the same thing. Last year, I shot one of my biggest bucks ever. I actually was scouting it last year's spring, this area, this hub. It was really a bear to get to. You have to go up over a hill that is not fun. It takes about an hour to get up this thing. It is steep. And there's actually a river you got to cross even before you get to this place. So you cross up over that top and then you can drop down into this hub system that leads out to an egg field. And when I was in there scouting, actually, I went around and checked out three other hubs and didn't see what I really wanted to see. So I got to this last hub that was the worst to get to. And man, I found a giant shed in this in this hub. And I'm like, holy cow. And I'm like, well, well this is, I got to figure this place out. So I actually almost blew through this hub because there was such little sign in there that until I found that shed, it made me slow down and look around. And I'm like, oh my God, there's just giant sign in here. Not a lot, but enough. So there's two hubs that have a hill that goes between them. And at the top, the end of these two sea hubs, there is actually an oak flat with briars there. And when I was scouting it, I'm like, okay, it doesn't seem like these bucks are really actually bedding in that hub I found that shed in. So I spent the whole weekend in this hub system just figuring it out, figuring it out. And what I ended up finding is they were actually bedding in the small hub. It was just a really small C-shaped hub. And they were crossing over that flat area with the briars in it and coming and dropping down into that other big hub and going out to those fields. It got to the point where I literally knew what finger, because there was fingers that came down that hub system too. And I knew what finger they were actually, those mature bucks were coming down. So I set up a, like you said, I couldn't get a cell cam signal in there. So I set up a regular SD cam in there and I left it on a hub scrape. So when I went back hunting in there, 
uh, October 3rd, I had the, the perfect wind. I had everything right. I get up in there and I checked that camera and the bucks that I would consider shooters hadn't been in there or through there. They were coming through probably about once a week. So I knew I had to get closer up that finger. So I moved in up that finger about a hundred yards and man, it worked out perfect. I had white oaks that were dropping there. I had a doe that crossed in front of me, which I usually don't see a lot of deer in Indiana. But that buck, he came down that finger, that exact finger that I guessed him to come down on and gave me the shot that I needed. So that's kind of a cool story that you're seeing the same thing. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, and that's I, there's a lot of takeaways there. The one big takeaway for me is the fact that you found those white oaks on that spur ridge, on that finger that they were walking down, and that's something I really try to target early season two. I know we're going off on a tangent here, but I think it's a good one. But I, I really try to focus on making sure that I can shoot that first food source, whatever that may be. And a lot of times, it could even be a single white oak tree. You know, I've seen it where a buck will get out of a bed, and he'll have a single white oak, let's say 40 yards off his bed, and he'll hold up on that white oak until dark before he makes it down into the hub and then works his way out to ag. If you can push up there and shoot that white oak, you're really in the game. So when I'm doing all this scouting, I put a lot of emphasis on making sure I'm finding that first food source. If I can't shoot the white oak he's going to be at, if it's hot that year, I'm just out of the game. And I would rather not even go in there and hunt, to be honest with you, because I don't want to sit back, have him hit that white oak and then get down. And he smells me at dark where I was set up 80 yards away. You know what I mean? Absolutely. 100% right. Let's roll back over here into the trail camera thing. So let's talk about Indiana a little bit, just because that's, you know, that's something we've spoken on quite a bit in the show already. So as far as Indiana, when are you primarily putting your cameras out and what types of areas are you putting them? Are you putting them all down in hubs? Are you putting them, you know, I just want to hear your whole process as far as that goes. The first thing I do is I e-scout and I find hubs that I feel would have good betting points on. And to me, good betting points are points that will have steep drop-offs and there'll be a, a point usually two-thirds the way up. The best ones will have a little bit of briar or cover on it or some deadfalls or something. So these hubs usually if they aren't a really long walk in they're a really hard walk and those are typically the ones that I will find. I will make a plan on checking let's say four hubs in a day 
and only generally one of those four hubs will actually be good. That's usually about what my numbers are. So I'll go through and count them out real good. I'll look for those beds and I'll look for that hub scrape at the bottom. So now in Indiana, here's the thing that I've learned about Indiana. Their deer density isn't super high like Wisconsin, but there seems to be more mature bucks per square mile. So when I get into these hub systems, I will put a camera up. If I see anything that makes me think a mature buck is living there, I'll throw a camera up. What is, to me, a camera? I buy these really cheap. They're with soda cameras through Amazon. I absolutely love them. They're cheap as heck. And I'll throw some some regular AA alkalines in there. And because I'm not getting a ton of pictures, they last a year in those in those hills. I'll get a camera up on the hub system. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, there's times where it blows my mind what kind of bucks were living in that area with so little sign. Just because I'm not seeing giant rubs all over the place, I'm seeing scrapes and that hub system, but that doesn't mean there isn't giants living in there. So once I get the, those cameras set up, which is usually right around March, I try to make two trips there. I'll leave at midnight on a Thursday night, get there by seven in the morning, and I'll run all day Friday, all day Saturday. I usually do about 10 to 12 miles hills, which is a lot in hills and then Sunday morning I'll spend about four hours just if I can get into one hub system or one area or whatever and, and get a little bit more and then head home. I'll check them when I go there this weekend and I'll run some more fresh cameras, check out some new hubs and stuff, but uh, I'll also be doing some glassing, which helps tremendously to know what bucks are in what area without having to check cameras too. Uh, it is a pain to check cameras in the hills. It takes a long time to uh, check cameras. So a lot of times I try to stay out of there. I'm pretty confident already i know what's in that area when i get in there it's a matter of checking camera on the way in and it's throwing my hunt at it your process is put them out in the spring check them once in the summer and then you check them when you go back to hunt right some i'll check right away if they're easy to get to and and will give me some intel whether the deer or the bucks are in there right away but some i just already know that they're going to be in there and i'm trusting my scouting and my camera intel from summer checks when you're checking your cameras in the summertime is there anything that you're looking for while you're in there to tip you off that it's going to be a good year in that system or not? I'll check for tracks. That's my biggest thing because they leave tracks and those are the easiest to see. They won't be rubbing or anything. The other thing while I'm in there, if I'm checking, I'll be wind mapping. That's something that's a whole nother subject, but that's huge in those hubs is wind mapping with the leaves on because I find that early season, those winds will be a little different going through that hub system with leaves on versus when they're in spring when there's no leaves. So uh, I also wind map right away while I'm in there too. I do the same thing. I've pretty much always got milkweed with me. The leaf on wind mapping to me is very important just because I'm mainly targeting early season in a lot of these systems. And so it just makes all the sense in the world to me to have, you know, very similar conditions to what you'll see come season. You know, you're going to go out and check your cameras. It'll be roughly August 5th to the 7th, let's say. And the woods aren't going to change much between then and opener, aside from the acorns starting to fall better. One thing that I'll add to what you do, and I'm sure that you do this, I'm really trying to verify the oaks while I'm in there that are going to be hot that year. So we were just down in Kentucky a week and a half ago, 
and we're going through these systems, checking all our cameras because we did the same thing. We put all our cameras out in March. I'm really glassing a lot of oak trees, especially those lone feed trees that I want to be targeting. I try to time a lot of these up after a storm or after high winds. That way the acorns are laying on the ground from the winds as well. So, you know, I'm just doing that too, just to make sure I'm in the right system because, you know, we'll get into this a little bit on like from a historical data standpoint, but for me, having active acorns in those systems is very important. And if you find the right system, you know, say you have a hub that has a cornfield or a bean field down below, but you have really good white oaks and red oaks in the hub. Well, then all of a sudden the deer don't shift as much in my opinion, as they do if they have to move for that food source. You know, if they're occupying a hub because they can go to an ag field, well, when that hub starts dropping red oaks and white oaks, they don't even have to leave. So when you find those, you know, that's like the best of both worlds when you find those systems where you can say, okay, they have food here year round. So it's going to hold the deer a lot better. And then that data is going to be a lot, a lot more useful to me. You know, in all honesty, I, you know, probably shame on me because I hunt so much early season in Indiana. I actually just concentrate on the white oaks that are holding because it seems like the red oaks, they won't start eating on until later October, beginning of November. Those white oaks are just candy to them. I just, it's, it's just crazy how they'll migrate from a hub system or to that hub system just for those white oaks. When you check your cameras, what kind of data are you taking and correlating to try to help you when you go hunt Indiana early season? I obviously always look at the winds for that day and also the times. The times are really big for me too because that'll tell me a lot of times how close they are betting through that camera. Kind of feel that if they're coming through, let's say at, it gets dark at eight and came through at nine, that they're probably betting 100, 150 yards ish, 200 yards away. The later in the night that I see them rolling through, the further I think they're betting. And, you know, that could be concerning that they may not even be betting in that hub system. And now I got to start looking at other hubs. Or figure something else out. The biggest thing, though, is just seeing what bucks are using that hub system. Because I have faith that once the acorns start dropping and those food sources are changing, I feel really confident that those bucks are going to be in that hub system, even if they're not in there at that very moment. The other thing is something that a lot of guys don't take into account. I hang my uh, my cameras up high. And I don't always get pictures of those bucks that are maybe, you know, 30, 40 yards over that are moving through. And I'm fine with that. But you got to remember for every picture of a buck that you're getting, I feel that you're missing five or six other times that that buck came. So for me, a picture is good, but it's telling me he's using that hub. And I'm not going to get down on myself if it's only once a week that I'm seeing him because he's over one way or the other or decides not to visit that scrape or whatever. I, you know, I, I'm confident that that buck is still going to be in there. I've actually targeted deer before that weren't, you know, they would show up on the camera during the summer and a couple weeks out of season, but I would be in there hunting that deer and actively having encounters. And I didn't have that deer on camera for weeks at a time, even though I'm visually seeing him in that system. 
from a tree stand. And so I completely agree with you there that the cameras only tell you so much of the story and they can become a crutch very easy if you rely on that data. I've been there myself at times where I did rely on that data. And now I've checked myself and realized that, hey, you know, if you get a picture a week, that deer is living there. He's in that system. You just have to figure out how to capitalize on the day he's going to be there with wind direction and everything else. So I do have a question for you, Gary, with these hubs. So, you know, we talked about anticipating the shift earlier, and this is something I ran into in Kentucky a little bit. I've I ran into this problem before. Say that you have these systems that you're running these cameras in and you're anticipating the acorns being good in there. Well, you go in in August and you're checking around for acorns. Let's say this hub leads out to a bean field, soybean field. So it's going to dry up before the Indiana opener. And you're really excited about this hub. You found a big shed in there. You've got some cameras staged in there. The deer are actively in it right now going to the soybean field. But you're glassing around, looking around, and there's no acorns in there this year. No reds, no whites in that entire system. What's your next move? Say you have a buck in there that you just have no choice but to chase. He's an absolute giant. What's your next move to try to figure out how to how to get on that deer? Betting. That's what brings scouting comes in. Now I have to try to figure out, okay, well, he's he's betting in this certain area and he's comfortable there. I feel that a lot of those mature bucks don't just bounce out of there just because the food in that particular area isn't as great anymore. I think they still will use that bedding area, but they'll long line to a different field or to a different area where there is acorns. In the part that I am in Indiana, it seems like there's ridge system and and all these ridge systems are like public land and they they all drop down into big egg fields that are are private. Those hub systems still seem to stay hot even when the acorns aren't there because they still will live in those hills because that's their home. So yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be thinking of betting on those leeward sides, those points and kind of picking that apart until I get my eyes on them. So you have that data now. Are you actually planning your trip down there based on that data? Or are you going down there and then you're saying, okay, I had this buck in the system on a west. I'm going to go in there and try to target him on that west wind day. I just plan my trips October 1st and I deal with the wind at that point. You know, I have probably a dozen hub systems that I feel that there's potentially good bucks in or I know there's good bucks in and those are all at different winds. So if the wind isn't good for this system, well, I know there's this good buck over in this system I can go after with this wind. So that way, because I have limited time to be there, I have to have those options. That's something I try to do out of state as well is just have at least one hub for every potential wind direction. That way I get down there and I'm not just stuck sitting in the hotel because I don't have a place to hunt because the wind is different. So so I think that that's a really good, a really valid point. And, you know, we're we're looking at August right now. There's still time for people to put that together if they need to. And that's the point of this podcast today with the checking cameras and, and correlating that data and, you know, going through and rescouting these systems. I'll actually be in a couple states in Hill Country in the next few weeks doing the exact same thing. I'll be checking my cameras that have already been out. I'll be fixing those cameras up. Let me ask you this. When you're in a system, do you make mocks at all? Or are they all natural hub scrapes? I do a little bit of both. I do make some mock scrapes, but most of them in Indiana are 
natural scrapes that'll open up, make bigger. And the other thing is, I use the same called Booner juices as you do. <laughs> yeah, the Buck Fever Synthetics. I've been using that for probably three, four years now with some just fantastic results. But the one thing I do that me, you know, a lot of old school guys still do is I'll actually piss in those scrapes too after I'm done freshening them up with the Buck Fever Synthetics. And I'll tell you what, hey, it, it does really work. I have pictures of those deer going and smelling that, checking it out. It really draws them in and gets them going again when I do that. It's just something that I've noticed from cameras and that'll actually stay like that for probably about a week. You'll see an actual wet spot in the ground and those deer are just like what the heck is this and they're checking it out so it gets them over to check it out and gets them going again that's exactly what you're trying to do you're trying to get those deer to come over and make that their community scrape let's jump over to historical data a little bit are you targeting a lot of these systems and running cameras in a lot of these systems based on the fact that in the previous years you've had good bucks in there as well usually yes but in order to learn what's in those systems i have to run cameras and any of those systems I feel potentially has a good buck because they don't rub a lot. Uh, it's pretty crazy how they're I have one area right now that has three just really good bucks in, and you would never know. You would walk in there and you'd be like, man, this is just another hub system. But I, man, I'm telling you, it's just, it really blew me away what I was missing out on. All it takes is one good rub or something to give that clue, or best yet is tracks. So when I get into new hub systems, I always, well, if I feel there's potentially some good bucks in that area, if I found any good rubs, I, I will actually hang a camera in there. Like I said, it's a it's a $30 camera. What better way of being able to learn some of these areas and get intel with a $30 camera? To me, that's a, a pretty cheap price considering, you know, the drive time, the amount of time it takes to get to these hubs. And it gives me potentially new spots to go into all the time then. With this historical data, because of the fact that there's ag fields in most of those systems, I think that it's going to be valid historical data where like I run into issues sometimes where I don't have ag around where because those food sources are shifting so much. I mean, I'll have a year where I have three or four, you know, big mature bucks in a system. And the next year I'll have zero big bucks in that system because the white oaks are, you know, a mile away. The white oaks a mile away are raining like crazy. And the ones in that system just aren't producing that year. And so, you know, the historical data gets a little bit muddy to me in some of those situations for early season, you know, for the rut, I think it's a little bit more useful for me because of the, the active doe groups coming in every year. But for early season, it gets a little muddy for me just trying to track down that one specific deer sometimes if I don't have a consistent food source. But it sounds like having that consistent food source in Indiana, which this is really good because a lot of people do have these situations where they do have a more consistent source. So that consistent food source in Indiana is giving you the ability to utilize historical data pretty much every year in those systems, right? Correct. So the one exceptions to the rules, there's a couple, actually, there's a couple exceptions to the rules. One is obviously pressure. Where I shot my first buck the first year I was at, in Indiana, we did a video for the hunting beast. And I think there was some people who recognized the area. Next thing I know, I go in there the next year and there's ladder stands everywhere in there. And I was going, oh my Lord. <laughs> that changes things tremendously. It seemed like those bucks deeper in and the ridge systems than they were where I shot that buck the first year. The other thing is there is such a thing as too much food. 
food. And three years ago, two years ago, there was such a huge acorn mass. I couldn't get on any bucks. They just literally could lay in their beds and acorns would fall on top of them. They could eat right out of their bed. And man, that just really, um, the the deer movement for, for that year was just horrible. I've never seen it like that in my life. It was like walking on marbles. There was big blooms of oaks floating down the rivers or acorns, I mean, floating down the rivers. It's just there wasn't anything going out the fields until late at night. And it was just a bad year because of the fact there were so many acorns out there. So that year with all those acorns, what did you learn that would make you a better hunter for the next time you see that situation? You know, let's say you go down to Indiana this year and you have the same problem. There's acorns all over the place. They're not going to the ag, so their travel routes are a little bit different through these hub systems. What did you take away from that year where you had acorns everywhere that'll that'll just make you a little bit better? I would hunt beds. I'd go back to my roots, bee style, and I would go after those beds that I found in spring scouting and trust my scouting and go from there. Just try to move in as close as I can without bumping them. Get tight as I could with them. That's about the most you could do other than do some observation sits. But you really have to be tight on those deer in those kind of uh, situations. They don't have to go anywhere to feed. So in early season, there's not really much for them, you know, at that point that they need to move around for other than maybe they go sniff a door or two here and there, just kind of checking things out. But really makes it hard hunting when there's that much food around. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I always tell everybody I don't want too many and I don't want none. I want in the middle somewhere where, you know, you've got enough to make some travel routes, but you don't have enough to where they're hitting them on the head in their beds. But I, I agree with you. My answer would have been the exact same thing. It would be just push up to the bedding. And that's the thing is I love hunting beds and like I, I know where all the beds are at, but I find myself almost being more of a food hunter, but in a different mindset than I would say most food hunters. Like I'm still hunting the bedding areas or like the travel routes to the food, but I'm basing that off of the active food. So for me in my head, you know, like if I have two bedding areas and the one bedding area, the acorns are dried up that year, but the other bedding area, the acorns are hot. I'm going to take my first sit probably on that other bedding area, just assuming that deer wants a like, let's say the bedding's equal. It has the same amount of cover, the same amount of pressure, uh, the same, you know, wind advantage and everything else. I'm going to find myself targeting the bedding area that's closer to the hot food source. And then if need be, I'll push over to that set, the other bedding area. But I kind of feel like these bedding areas gain and lose priority based on the specific food sources of the year. But when you have food everywhere, like you said, then all of a sudden my mindset shifts back to what is the absolute best bedding area? What one has the least amount of pressure? What one has the best wind advantage, the best elevation advantage? You know, all these things. And then I become more of a bed hunter. So if we have food everywhere, I become more of a bed hunter. And if we don't have a ton of food, I become more of a food hunter. It's kind of backwards, you know, mindset. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you any more on that. That uh, that that's how I am too. Like I I like the bedding, but the bedding also comes with that little clause where where's the food too. So yeah, that's a hundred percent right on. I really liked that conversation we just had because I'm in that situation a lot this year with a bunch of different hunts. But I'm also in the situation where I'm going to be going to a state that I don't have any any intel on besides being there for a day and a half and killing a deer. That's I've spent 36 hours in the state of Kansas in my life. And so I'm headed back there this year and I know that you're headed to Nebraska and it's going to be a different time frame. You're going to go out there uh, for the opener, correct? Yep. Yep. So going out to Nebraska, being a guy that 
is very into historical data and into running, you know, 90 cameras, um, into like learning as much about deer in an area before he strikes, which is what I think that you're a lot like me. Like I want to become very intimate with every single thing that that deer could do before I strike on him because I need to build that confidence in my head internally, which sounds very similar to you. But so going to Nebraska without any camera data, without any historical data, what is going through your head as far as your strategy going out there? I guess I'm going to be probably starting off with some glassing in the evenings, seeing where I can see a good buck coming out. Being that it's so early in the season, they're going to be on that bed to food thing. And they're just uh, kind of going to try to do that. I'll e-scout. I'll find uh, where I think their bedding is. And I will uh, maybe just gently kind of push in a little bit and see what I can see for any kind of rubs or scrapes or anything to that effect. And then from there, I'm going to, you know, from, from what I see, I'm going to base my sits off of that. I've done enough scouting. I feel I, I put on every spring, probably put on 600 miles of scouting every spring. And you kind of get a feel for for where the, the good mature buck bedding is. So kind of have to go off of that. So it should be an interesting hunt. It's, it's definitely going to be a, a, a very fun hunt. So no camera intel, just kind of going in on what my my skills are and, and seeing if I can score that way. So do you have any specific features you're looking for from an e-scouting standpoint to, to just put you in a general good location? Like I always try to find some sort of topography just so I can play that leeward windward game and kind of feel like I have an idea where the betting's going to be. Even if I'm totally wrong, that's that's typically something going through my head. Do you have any process or any features that you're looking for specifically? I like points where like coming out of a, a thicket or uh, on the side of a hill or something, I kind of feel those early season bucks are a little bit bedding a little bit more in the open than they typically would when the pressure starts up. They're not pushed back so far. And being Nebraska, I don't know how much pressure there is in the area that we're going into. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Just going to kind of go off of that. And I'm going to try to find some oaks too that are dropping. Because then if I find those white oaks in those areas that are dropping, man, that'll be just a hot commodity at September 1. That's just going to be probably the place to be more than it would out in the crop fields. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, I think if you can find that, you're going to be you're going to be in the game for sure. And so are you going to show up a couple days early and do some driving around and glassing or are you showing up on the opener and going from there? What's your thought process? No, I, I'm going to be showing up there a day or two early and, and uh, driving around and glassing and just kind of taking a look at maps and seeing what I can figure out, put a game plan together that way. So it's kind of going in blind, but not going in blind. So it, it's definitely going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a totally different hunt for me too. So like, I'm like you said, I'm, I'm the type of guy that needs to get that knowledge, knowing what's in there and then have a game plan of going after him. So this is, it's going to be be definitely interesting. Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure you'll do great. I'm excited to see how that plays out for you. Uh, I think that, you know, you're going to have a, a great year in Indiana, Wisconsin, Nebraska. It's it's going to be fun to look back on it. We'll have to do a podcast after you kill a couple deer. But uh but hey Gary, so we've been on this thing for about an hour. 
I think it's been a great show. I think there's a lot of good light bulb moments here and takeaways here for people. Uh, where can where can people find out more about you? I'm on Instagram and also Facebook. The videos will be on the Hunting Beast, so you can see that there. Any of my videos, my past bucks I shot are on Hunting Beast. That is awesome. Well, hey, thank you again for coming on today's show, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. It was a privilege. Thank you. All right, everybody, that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. We'll see you next time.